Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money. All in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or your computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating a podcast today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify and when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I love engaging with my audience with the Q&A and the polls. And I also love the fact that I can upload my video podcast on Spotify because I know my audience love watching it sometimes when they're traveling on their commute. I highly recommend you give it a try and you can download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com forward slash podcasters to get started. Shamza. Hi. Welcome to Millennial Mind. Thank you for having me. No, thank you for being here. I um, I came across your story and it was just, I don't really have any words for it if I'm honest because I felt so emotional and so heartbroken watching it and I just can't believe how strong you are, really, honestly, truly. I've never, I think we're just so used to, you know, listening to people complain about their daily problems. Mm. And I guess the point of this podcast, Millennial Mind, is to reach different millennials and talk about our different experiences and how we all come from all walks of life. Your story particularly is one that has resonated with me and stuck with me for so long because you're just so strong. Everyone says that, (laughs) but... During my experience, I wasn't mm. strong. Yeah. And often survivors, when they go through a very traumatizing experience and, you know, they speak on their story, mm-hmm. I think the first thing that people say to them is, you're so strong. Right. And for me, I found that a little difficult mm. um, at first um, to take in. Only imagine. because I thought, in what stage was I actually strong? Mm, I but now I realize that just living. Exactly. And being able to, you know, progress and do better, really. Right. Um, so I am a little proud. <laughs> I am very be. proud of myself. I am. I, I think, you know, when you say at what stage, I think throughout, you know, when it's, it's like coping with that and and striving for another day and trying to find a way out. And, you know, for me, when I was listening to your story, I was like, I think I would have given up, Mm. you know? And I think that's what I mean by strength. I think that people look at you and they think, wow, it's, you've overcome the impossible, I think, for so many people. I don't, honestly, I don't know how. (laughs) I don't know how. I do have a superpower that Mm -hmm. I believed saved me. Okay. And it, I found now, I found out that it's my coping mechanism. Before, I never used to, I used to think it's weird. Why do I do that? So I laugh or smile um, when I talk about any experience that I've had. And it helps me feel better mm-hmm. about it because mm-hmm. I'm putting on, you know, a smile and mm-hmm. then I'm laughing. And I don't ever want to sit down and completely shut down yeah I just couldn't imagine my life being that 
Mm-hmm. So the alternative was smile through it and it worked. So It's funny you say that because sometimes when I can't process an emotion, I often laugh. Mm. And I'm like, I'm not laughing because I'm being insensitive. <laughs> exactly. But sometimes I'm like, what? Like, I, and it's happened to me a few times before and I felt really guilty. But mm-hmm. I can't. I can't express my emotion in that moment. And mm. it's very rare. I'm like very good at expressing my emotions, mainly I cry all the time. But you know, sometimes there's moments that shock you so much mm. that you can't actually get upset and, and I emotional. Laugh, yeah, so I laugh in, so in those type of situations as well. Cause yeah. what's the alternative? I get mad or I get right. irritated or I'm like, no, it's not yeah. worth feeling that. So, so yeah. let's, so let's go back to your childhood. Okay. So you grew up in Somalia. Mm-hmm. You lived with your mum? No, my mother was working in Saudi at the time. Okay. I lived with my grandma, Mm -hmm. uh, my sister, and my two sisters, actually, and 10 other siblings or nine other siblings. So altogether, we were 12. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yes. uh, A house full of children. And how was that? For me, it was amazing having, you know that experience of having, you know, such a huge family and everyone, no matter what task they did, for example, we used to herd sheep, mm. um, collect water, um, get milk out of, you know, um, I think it was sheep or goats. I, okay. I don't remember. <laughs> but milk came from somewhere. Yeah. And um, it was fun. Mm. Like we used to climb trees and play with sand. And I, mm. those were really enjoyable memories for me. Mm-hmm. But there's also you grow having to grow up really fast mm. mentally. Right. Um, physically as well. Why? Because you get to a certain age or a girl gets to a certain age where she starts hearing everybody talk about um, Guditan. It's called um, or Hananes in some cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, or even... Um, Oh, what was it? Uh, Sunnah. Sunnah, okay. Um, but in the UK or in the Western world, we refer to it as female genital cutting. Mm-hmm. In the UK, it's female genital mutilation. And it is very subtle, the right. way that they talk about it. So um, a parent, you know, your aunties um, or your, whether it's from your mom's side or your dad's side, or your grandma, the village women, the kids mm-hmm. who've already had it done would come up to you and say, you know, you're going to have this done. Well, Guda, you know, you're going to have, uh, you're going to be circumcised. Um, you're going to be a woman. The, this is a transition. You're going to be a lot cleaner, more respected. And as a child, you think none of it makes any sense. Right. But in a way, you get excited because everyone makes it seem like it's so like cool almost like Like it is meant to be you know it is something that we've all gone through and now you get to experience it too (laughs) so i think in our minds it was like you know getting your ears pissed um but when we had it as a group so it was myself uh, my sister and my cousin right in other videos, I refer to my sister as a cousin because I didn't want to involve her in my stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but honestly, like, what can I say? I have to tell. I have to tell the truth, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had it with my sister, 
-hmm. who's a year older than me, my cousin and uh, myself. Right. So we were taken, when the day came, we were taken to my grandma's house and she had a massive uh, front yard. Okay. Um, and there was a woman sat there. My aunties were there. My uncle was there. And they sat us down. We waited patiently. And then... So at this point, you knew it was happening? Yeah, but and we didn't kind know of what it was. About, yeah. Oh, you didn't know We, we didn't know. Was. We've never seen anyone have it done. We've never... Right. We didn't know what it was. None it was of us just knew. like, this is something that you're going to do and it's going to make you cleaner. Yeah. Right. And you're going to be a woman. So you didn't know the details. Because right. girl, young girls who haven't had it done were shamed, whether they were in a mosque, whether they were in schools, whether actually we didn't even have a school. But within the community, men, women and children will shame the hell out of that child for having a clitoris. But how would they know? Because the whole village has it done. So if you don't right. get it done, everybody then knows. everybody knows. Yeah, everyone knows. Wow. So they're constantly taunted for having a clitoris. You're not clean. You have a clit. And it's like, it didn't make any sense. But for us, having it was dirty almost. Right. Um, or unclean. Or the fact that it's exposed is not right. So we got to the location. We sat down. And lucky enough, actually, we weren't lucky. I keep saying that. We weren't lucky but for me, I see it as lucky because I didn't go first. Right. My cousin went first. And the moment, it was peaceful, like from her going to where we were sat down to the little stall that they put on the floor for us. Okay. Um, sat down and everyone in the family, my grandma, my auntie, uh, my aunties were grabbing her by her arms, her legs, like trying to pin her down. And then me and my sister looked at each other. We were like, okay, this, this doesn't look right. And then the cutter took a blade and started cutting. And because there was no anesthetics or painkillers or any even, even a warning, she started screaming. And then someone put um, a cloth in her mouth to like muttle quiet her. Um, screaming down so the whole village didn't have to tolerate that and then when we started seeing blood and actual cutting we got up and we ran we ran because we were, um, this is not going to happen to me of course um, so we were chased after brought back to the house because we were kids where, where was we running to uh, brought back to the house, and then once we came back, they were sewing her. So we were like, that is going to happen to us. And you could see it? Yeah. So we, she came back, they picked her up, they tied her uh, legs together with um, a cloth, lifted her, put her down on the floor, and then it was my turn and I was taken to the chair, mm -hmm. screaming, kicking, fighting, because I knew what was about to happen. And I was sat down, were held they down. Were comforting you? When they no. Were... no. Comforting? <laughs> no, not in any way, shape or form. Not so like, calm down, be stop okay. screaming. No. Okay. No, I didn't hear any of that. Um, it's just like something that has to be done. 
it's not something that they should apologize for, you know? And they pulled my legs apart, tried to like hold me down as much as they could. But because I was fighting so much, it was almost like really difficult for them. But I refused to put my lower, like my bum down on the chair. Cause I mm. knew if I stood still, mm -hmm. like she could cut easier. So I wanted to make sure that it was harder for her to. Um, and then just before I was cut, I, they, you know, fighting these people, I looked to the side and I could see a jar of like the bits that she puts in, that she's cut off the girls. And I just thought I'm my, they're gonna put like my, mm pieces in there as well the everything was confusing every single from the start to the finish it was confusing there were no explanations no nothing and she started cutting and i cannot describe to you the pain I can't imagine. as a six-year-old to have to feel a blade running through their skin over and over and over and over again with the risk of infections, the risk of bleeding to death, uh, the risk of things having other types of complications, right. hemorrhages or uh, blood clots, or just not being able to urinate and dying because everything is being collected, whether it's your urine or your period. And I'm sure they use the same blade that they use for your cousin. Like they, she you, probably, right? Yeah, she probably did. And she probably used the same blade for girls before us. <laughs> so, it was a very dangerous uh, procedure. Um, and then I went into shock and I just st stood still because I, I don't know, my body at the time I didn't understand, mm -hmm. but now looking back, my whole entire body went into shock and she was able to sew me um, and left two tiny little holes to urinate uh, from, or in the future when I get my period, it can flow, <laughs> it can't. Um, and then my sister went, we had to witness her. Again, they did the same thing they did to my cousin. They tied my legs up, lifted me, put me down next to my cousin, did the same procedure for my sister, tied her legs, put her beside us and when it came time for us to want to urinate, because having gone through that, you're going to want to pee, and we all did. The pain of having, you were just sewn, you were just cut, and you're urinating, but there's nowhere for the urine to come out. That is torture. It is. It's, urination is supposed to be natural. Mm -hmm. The most natural thing. Mm -hmm. That was taken away from you. At six. At six. And then it was constant pain from then onwards. And I don't know why they do it. I'm trying to figure it out. But I, I believe that they do it because of the shock. But they slaughtered an animal beforehand and washed us all in the blood. And then waited for us to dry. And then... But... Hold on, hold in on, hold every on. So you were cut? Mm-hmm. 
you're in all this pain, mm -hmm. and then you're drenched in, in animal blood. Blood. Yeah. Left to dry and then washed off in the same spot, <laughs> which is, until now, I honestly cannot get my head around that. And I still haven't asked my auntie mm. why they did that, but I will one day <laughs> when I see her. What, was the, what were you going to say before I interrupted you? Sorry, you were going to say you think the reason why is... I think the reason why they do it is to like prevent more shock or just to calm the person down. But then I, I can't admit that was more shocking afterwards. I mean, <laughs> to have that done because I did that didn't make any sense either. But it's traumatizing in it itself. Is, it is. How does that prevent any more shock? I feel like that makes you like even more like what is going on yeah right yeah yeah it was it was the weirdest experience it's probably ever. as well like blood yeah. of an animal no have you ever had oh shit why would you but having it washed <laughs> off your body is no i've never had that done unusual <laughs> feeling ever it's, why i don't know it's very like silky and it's i i can't describe it it just does not feel right i mean correct. i'm a vegetarian so no. i think i would <laughs> I feel like at that point, I would, <laughs> yeah, I would have no. given up at that point. Yeah, I don't yeah, mean yeah, like no. I can't. But um, in different cultures, um, they do things in different ways. Right. So within Somalia, there are some people that maybe do that, but there's mm -hmm. others that don't do things like that. Right. Majority actually don't, I think. Um, but small little villages, isolated villages, mm -hmm. there is a possibility that they have some sort of um, ritual before it happens or some sort of party before it happens or after. Um, Did you have a party after? No, I didn't. Uh, it was just done. I think my party was the blood. <laughs> but um, in different cultures, I know the uh, Bundabush, which is uh, Sierra Leone, mm -hmm. they perform FGM procedures as well. And I was recently ex told that they have a, like a whole ceremony and they braid the girl's hair in three and you know, the whole community comes out and it's a massive, massive party. And I thought that fascinated me because it, it was so different from my experience. Mm -hmm. But we all share the same insecurities, unfortunately. So, you, so you're living at your grandma's house, mm -hmm. and the ser and that that's where the cutting happened. So, tell me what happened after you were obviously washed with the blood, and then what did you do? That's it. We just went about our day. We couldn't walk. You didn't properly. ask your grandma why did that happen? We're not allowed. What is she gonna say? And she Will didn't we... say anything to you either. No. Wow. Because when you're living in that society, you have to go by the norms of everybody else. Mm -hmm. Whatever everybody is doing, you have to, it's like a cult, right. <laughs> almost. Right. Whatever everyone else is doing, you have to do that. Whatever everyone else is thinking, you have to do that. And in our culture, we're not told to ask questions, especially as women. 100%. We're told not to ask questions, not mm -hmm. to bring shame to the family, not to dishonor them, not mm -hmm. to do anything crazy or say anything crazy. So asking those type of questions would have, it would have been like, are you doubting my choices as a parent? Mm -hmm. like, what, what can you say to that? So we were programmed not to say anything, just agree. Because everyone else was so happy with it. So why can't you be? So you just didn't talk about it at all? No. After that, no. even to your sister and your cousin? No. No, wow. my cousin actually had an accident because we were kids 
when it healed enough for us to walk and play again, we went to the tree that we normally used to climb. She fell off and was injured by a plant. When I say injured, I mean genital area. And she was re-sewn the same day. I don't even think she was treated for the, the injuries, but so sad. Her, their main concern was, okay, we need to sew her back up. And who checks this all? This is what I find Just so... Just the village cutter. What a kind of job is that? not educated. A woman who is only doing it to gain financially. Right. Because she's probably poor. She don't have any money. She needs a way to feed her family. So it's part of the, you know... She needs to get finances from somewhere. And that's a job. She sees it as a career. Because people need it and people want it. That's one of the reasons why it's so difficult to stop it, mm-hmm. to end this practice. Because what is, your, what is she going to do? What's the alternative mm-hmm. for her? Because mm-hmm. this was her only source of income. And it's still legal in Somalia, right? They say that it's banned, but it's not banned. It's not banned. They're performing it till this day. It's 2022 and it still happens. It's so crazy to me because I think, first of all, I've never heard someone talk about it. Mm. And secondly, I think as a young child, when, even when you're young, you have an instinct of what is right and wrong. Yeah. Right? You know when something's right, you know when something feels off. And probably watching your cousin screaming and watching everyone use their force to hold her down, in that moment, you're like, this is wrong. Mm. And not being able to say something about it and ask questions. You know, recently I was told, your generation have the privilege of asking questions. We were never able to even ask why. But you no. guys seem to want to know why to everything. Mm. And I, and actually, my dad defended me and said, but they should know why. Because exactly. what's the point of them blindly doing things? Exactly. And it was like, you don't understand. You know, you're just so privileged. And it, you know, I think we're, we're looked down upon when we ask questions too often. And in this situation, I can't help but feel that, why wouldn't you ask? You know, mm. because... My experiences, I've always been able to say, like, what was that? Why, why didn't I be? Able, why wasn't I able to do that? And I, and I think I'm reflecting on it now. When I was younger, it was very different. Mm. But in an environment in which you don't feel you can, I think yeah, that's even well, harder. Yeah. So, what point did you move to the UK? I moved to the UK in 2001. Um, I was seven, I believe. Okay. Um, so a year after this. A year after this, yes. Okay. And my mother actually specifically told my grandmother not to do it because of the complications my mom had. But she did it anyway because she thought they're going to be taken to a Western country and, you know, God knows what's going to happen there. So she she did it. And how did your mom feel about it when she found out? What can she do? It's already done. We did not ever have a conversation about it because, again, if for it was like it was meant to be. So... Okay. It was normal. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. why talk about something that's so normal? Mm-hmm. Um, when I arrived in the UK, things looked very different. I wondered why women wouldn't make it. Uh, because you still have that mindset of, you know, just hearing what you were told. Okay. Um, Which was? That they are Christians and, you know, they will influence you in a bad way, don't follow their way, you have to mm-hmm. stay, you have to, you know, stay within your community. Okay. Um, don't be deterred or easily influenced. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but they uh, refer to them as uh, gala, which okay. is Christians or disbelievers. Right. Um, so you're supposed to distance yourself okay. from them, not really immerse yourself immerse yourself within their culture and when you say yours. naked you mean they just wore no like like short skirts right. they had their revealing clothes, uh, revealing clothes yeah. and it was very interesting coming mm. from a country you could barely see a woman's you know shape yeah shape and breast and mm-hmm. you know legs so it was very very interesting um and the transition was not easy um, because I still lived within the Somali community. I didn't mm-hmm. really interact a lot with school friends or it was just home. Right. Or the community or someone else's house was Somalian. So we didn't really, we only had TV really to wow. like properly learn. And how many siblings did you move here with? All 12? Oh, no. <laughs> okay. No, just my sister, myself, my little brother who was with my mom. Okay. And my mom. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And um, we went to, I went to primary school. Um, I started in year four. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could not speak any English when wow. I started. Um, and it was very interesting to see different children and the way that they interact and the way that they talk, everything was just fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Come year six, um, I learned English. Mm-hmm. Um, I picked it up quite fast, verbally. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I picked it up quite fast, um, speaking. Right. However, writing and reading was very, very difficult for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I even struggled, um, not in just primary school, but in high school as well. Mm-hmm. But when I was in year six, I had I was given a form, right? And by then I could kind of read or make sense of it. So when I looked, <laughs> it said uh, sex education, right? And when I asked what it was, they said we're going to you're going to watch a video. So I got really excited because I thought, oh, you know, it's really interesting to see what it could be about, right? Um, so I no idea, yeah. I forged my mom's signature because I, I had a feeling that she wouldn't let me because it, it, it included the word sex. Yeah. So I knew that she wouldn't let me go. Right. Um. So I forged her signature. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. <laughs> and um, I gave it to my teacher. She took uh, took a look, accepted it, and I s- got to go. Right. And sitting there and looking at the male and female genitalia, I realized very quickly that that doesn't look like mine because it showed, displayed a what a vagina looks like. Right. And I was sat there the whole time, I think it was an hour, trying to figure out why theirs was so different to mine because I knew that I was completely shut whilst that one is open. So I, I was like... But in my mind, the first thought that came into my mind was, oh, they're, they're, they're dirty. Mm. This is what they were warning us from. You know, they are in the wrong. Right. And it seemed like the Western society was the one that had something wrong with them, mm. not me. Um, and so, then again, I didn't talk about it. So when we think about FGC or FGM, mm. what does it mean? 
Because there's it, different types, right? Yes, yes, there are. So there is um, type one, which is the partial removal or the full removal of the clitoris, mm -hmm. and they leave everything else. Okay. Uh, type two is when they either partly or fully remove the clitoris, um, and then the labia minora and the labia majora in some cases. With type three, there is two or three other types that come under that. So type one is the removal or part removal or full removal of the clitoris, the labia, and the labia majora, mm -hmm. and having it sewn half, not even halfway, just okay. a little bit. And then the uh, other one is when they remove partly the clitoris or fully, and then they sew you up, but halfway. Okay. And then there's one that they should just completely shut you from top to bottom. That's what which is to you. That's, yeah, basically. And um, they all carry very serious um, complications, um, such as, like I said, death is the worst, yeah. um, infections, um, blood clots. They can have severe com uh, complications during labor yeah. if it's not um, dealt with before. Um, and the possibility of tearing mm. during sex or if you don't have a defibrillation, then you're going to just go on tearing and thinking about you know all the women that had it in your village and all the people who had it at home did any of them die did any of them have infections or did no one just speak about it no one spoke about it but i could bet you anything each and every one of them have experienced some sort of complication whether it's ptsd mm -hmm. i have memory problems sometimes and i was very surprised to find out that um FGM could cause um, issues with memory wow. um, because of how tra traumatizing yeah. it is. Um, what else? There is the um, possible development of cysts, mm. frequent ones. I had two in my lifetime and I really don't want another one because mm -hmm. every time you'll have to have surgery and I just can't have any more, mm -hmm. you know, cuts down there. I just, yeah. I just can't. Um, so you heard about it in school. Mm -hmm. Did you say anything to your teachers? Did you say anything to your friends? Anything to your sister? Your mom when you got home? Obviously you can tell your mom before no. your signature. Yeah. So then, fast forward, I, I've heard you speak in other interviews about how you got your period. Mm. And you're quite young, right? You were nine? Nine. And your mom said, don't tell anyone. Yeah. Why do you think she said that to you? Because you're now a woman. And I was like, but I thought I was a woman <laughs> when I was six. And she's like, no, you become a woman when you're on your period. Okay. It's like you're transitioning to womanhood then. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay. But because it was so painful, I used to end up in A&E. In the UK? In the UK. Mm -hmm. Almost every month, if not every other month, um, because it had nowhere to come out from. So I would roll around the floor to try and make myself feel better, but I couldn't tell anybody that I was on my period. I couldn't tell my father, my sister. Till this day, my sister actually believes I got mine when I was maybe 12 or 13. You couldn't and even like, tell your no. sister? <laughs> no, I couldn't tell oh anyone. Gosh. So what did you say when you were going to A&E? 
my stomach hurts. And when you got to A&E, obviously they, they checked you. Pretty sure, yeah. And no one said anything no. to you. You're a nine-year-old girl mm -hmm. and it's sewn down there. Mm -hmm. No one said anything. That's crazy. It is. In the UK? In the UK. Where it's illegal? Where it's illegal. Completely My criminalized. Gosh. But this is one of the biggest reasons why I do what I do because I realize that everyone is so focused on criminalizing FGM mm -hmm. or FGC, mm -hmm. but they've completely neglected the right. survivors. Right. You've n labeled them as mutilated, but you know, they're okay. Mm. No services accessible to them. They so they live with these complications, their insecurities, PTSD, depression, anxiety, and there's no focus on them at all. So when you would go to any every month, no one would say to you, Shamsa, okay, look, this is happening to you. We can see the reason why you're getting these infections. We can see the reason why. This is what we can do to help you. No. My God. So I suffered <laughs> with a period. Uh, with my period until I was 14, where I still I continue to suffer, but just a little less mm -hmm. because it was it's, the blood started tearing through my skin because it had no escape for um, a few years. It physically tore my skin open and part of my skin, so it's like that much, okay. and I could feel it go to school whilst I was like that, try to sit down whilst I was like that, try to have conversations whilst I was like that. And when I was 14, I told my mom that I was tearing and she was like, what? And I was like, I'm tearing. But with my mom, yes, she didn't want me to have um, this procedure done, but it was almost unbelievable that out of everybody she's met in her life, I'm the one. I'm the only one that she's ever heard of that That's was terrible. physically tearing because of her. I don't know. I didn't know what the reason was. So she asked me if I had any sexual mm -hmm. intercourse, and I said no. She said, "Did anybody touch you inappropriately?" I said no because no one ever did. Um, not at that time, anyway. That wasn't uh, the reason. And she said, "Okay, we're gonna go um, to." The doctor but in my mind i was like like are you you don't believe you don't believe me i told you that i didn't have why? sex so why why and she's like just to check okay and in my mind it was to check whether i was a virgin or not so at age 14 we went to the doctors mm -hmm. uh, a and e and there was a female doctor who checked me did an actual examination and she was like, oh, she explained to my mom that it, I was still a virgin and that um, the period had nowhere to come out from. And this is how I know, because she's the one who said it. And she said that it tore through her skin because it needed an escape route. And my mom was like, okay, no problem. I was still closed, but like that much. So I was very surprised that she didn't say, you know, will do a surgery or right. something. She gave me painkillers and she was like, um, you'll be fine. And I was taken home. And were you fine? No. The, t the pain didn't stop. I was, there was stinging every time I peed, every time I tried to urinate. Oh my God. From a wound that's not healing because I'm urinating. Yeah. But there was no help. 
no offer of anything, barely any sympathy. And so, your sister, was she going through something similar? Yeah, but very silently. My sister also never spoke about any type of complications. Um, I know she has surgery um, when she was young, I think because of uh, yeah. uh, the cyst that I had two surgeries. Um, and But we never had that discussion. We never spoke about anything like that. It was just complete silence when it involved anything to do with us, really. We couldn't well, talk of about course, it. you couldn't even tell her because of your period. Yeah, exactly. If I couldn't tell her my, about my period, how can I tell her about anything else? It just became normal to stay silent, mm -hmm. to not talk about things. It was just easier. You say that during school, you were quite similar to me, you always spoke up about things, mm. and you became someone who would express your opinion a lot. Yeah. You then had a gap year when you were 16. Uh, 17. 17. You then had a gap year when you were 17. Mm -hmm. And you went back to Somalia. I did. And listening to that, and listening to your story from the beginning, I have to ask why. Were you not I scared was, to go back? I was known as the troublemaker. I was known as the outspoken child. I was known as, you know, the bad breed. Right. Um, the black sheep of the family, really, because I wanted to be different. I knew that I was different. I just couldn't figure out why I felt that way. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think like everybody else. I, so many things about my culture confused me. And right. uh, a lot of things that my people were saying confused me. Um, so when you're constantly hearing that you're sluts or you know who um why were you labeled those things from the age of nine <laughs> but why i don't know i honestly can't tell you it's, an, it's like a norm within our community um calling your child little Lord because she i don't know uh spilled coffee on you or did something you didn't want to they will cuss you out what yeah so that's all i heard my whole life you're a slut you're a whore at some point, my dad was convinced that I was going to be a prostitute. <laughs> so did your dad move here as well? He lives here, yeah. He lives here, mm -hmm. okay. And um, so I thought we had we have this thing within Somali culture um, where if a child is too westernized, they are taken home to be recultured. So it's called okay. Dakan Ellis. And because I used to hear it, and I know uh, people that were taken back home, I thought maybe that's what I needed. Oh, wow. So you thought you needed I it? I thought I needed it. Uh, because I felt like I was stressing my mother out. No one in my, everyone in my family demonized me. So I thought, okay, if I do this, maybe I will seek in that approval, really. And I remember when I told my mom, because originally the plan was uh, Sweden, to you know go to my uncle, one of my favorite human beings. And... Um, I said, actually, I want to go to Somalia. And she was like, no, um, Al-Shabaab is there at the moment. Uh, it's dangerous. And I'm like, no, Who's I'm Al sure it's not. They're a terrorist organization like ISIS, but okay. are located in Somalia. I didn't believe it, to be honest. I thought she was just being um, a little dramatic. Um, and I've heard of Al-Shabaab before, but I didn't, again, believe that my people were capable mm. of terrorism, not on that level anyway. Um, eventually my mom agreed, um, and also thought maybe it would be, be a good thing. Good thing. And for me, I wanted to 
learn my culture. I wanted to meet family members who I've never seen before, like my mom's uh, brothers and sisters from both her parents' sides, and just get to know my land, really, reconnect, right? Uh, we went to Dubai. We had a lovely time. Then we got to Somalia, and my mom took her, my passport with her back to the UK. There, she said there is many reasons for this. One, I am, like I said, I have issues with memory, so I could put something somewhere and I wouldn't remember where it is, or someone can steal it from me uh, because there are terrorist organizations in Somalia. So I know that she had a valid reason for taking it. It wasn't to trap me mm-hmm. uh, necessarily in Somalia. And I know a lot of people out there maybe have that misconception. Okay. So I wanted to clear that up. Um, when my mom went back, I stayed with my auntie, who's also called Shamsa. And a few days after arriving, I went to something called Tashir, which I genuinely regret <laughs> doing. Um my auntie explained to me, because I asked her, I said, what's Tashir? And she said that uh, Al-Shabaab orders everybody in that town mm-hmm. um, to close all shops, everything, and come and watch someone be punished for a crime they committed. So I was like, no, they don't. Uh, that can't be right. I said, no. And I told my auntie I was going to go. She said, don't do it. They don't know that you're here. Um, so you can just be in the house. I said, no, no, I want to go. So I took my cousin um, the, I took my cousin with me, the one, one of the girls that I grew up with, okay. uh, one of the 12 kids that I grew up with. And we went there and they took this man out with a black thing over his head, nailed him down on the floor. There's like men on one side, women on one side, there's women soldiers with guns, there's male soldiers with guns, that guy in, on like a podium, you know, sh- shouting Allahu Akbar. And I looked at my cousin and she, she's shouting <laughs> as well. And I said, what are you doing? And she looked at me, she's like, you need to do it. And I said, why? Mm-hmm. I'm not, that's, no, there's no way on God's green earth that I'm chanting Allahu Akbar for, I don't even know was this man, did, they, did, did he have a trial? What did he do? If he stole something, did he need it? Is he poor? Like, what is right. the reason? There's reasons behind it. You can't just execute somebody or cut their hand off because... They stole something. What is the reason? Mm-hmm. Um, and it didn't feel right. Uh, so she's like, oh, but if you don't do it and they see you, they're going to uh, whip you because one of them had like a whip. And I was like, no, but I'll chant. I'll chant something. But I said, I ain't chanting that. So I just moved <laughs> my lips. Mm-hmm. And they took the black bag over the, uh, the man's head. They took it off. Um, they stretched out his um, hand. I don't remember what hand it was. Um, and then another one, they basically both, there were two men that were held onto like either side of the arm, the hand, and stretched out as much as they could. So another man can take a machete and take like two cuts to dislo- like to dismember the hand completely took it by the index finger, waved it around, waved it right past me and my cousin's face. I couldn't eat for three days after that in complete and utter shock. And then the fear of terrorists was installed into me because I was like, these people aren't joking. No, 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 yeah. They're they're deadly serious. 
Um, and at that point, weren't you like, I don't have my passport, I can't get out? I, I wasn't even thinking about my passport. I was just thinking about trying to find a way to not be me in front of these people. Right. So make sure that I was actually kind of glad that I didn't have my passport in a way because if they had found out that I was a British citizen, I was scared that the first thing they'll take from me is my passport. Mm -hmm. And then there's no way for me to get back. Mm -hmm. um, and I was very scared to tell anybody that I was a British citizen. So I'm there trying to like speak the best Somali and my Somali is really good, but mm -hmm. not that of good. Course. Um, and it was, it was scary, I'm not gonna lie, but I felt safe in a weird way with my auntie just being okay. with her because um, she's very protective. Uh, that side of my family is very protective. And then my uncle came to pick me up uh, from my mother's mom's side. Okay. And he explained that he has family over in Marco where my mother grew up, another city in Somalia. So he said, I'm gonna take you over. You're gonna meet the family. It's gonna be a great experience. And so I was like, okay. Were you gonna go by yourself? No, he, he came to get me. But were you were going to go by yourself, not with your cousins or anyone? No, by myself. Okay. Uh, because they don't really know different each other. Sides. So it's different yeah. sides. My mom didn't have a sibling that was the same, mom and dad. Mm -hmm. um, so we got on his truck. Uh, we went, traveled from uh, one city to, I mean, one city to another. Mm -hmm. Took like a day and a half. Long bus uh, car journey. But I got to see farms and like he did really amazing things on the way there to make right. to comfort you know you. comfort me. Mm. And then when I got there, it was you know being presented with all types of food, you know the princess treatment. Mm -hmm. And then soon he started mentioning marriage. Right. And, and how old were you at this point? Um, I just turned eighteen. So he's wow. like, I think it would be a great idea for you to get married. I have someone amazing in mind. And I'm like, no, that is not why I came here. That mm -hmm. was not part of my plan. I'm not going back a married woman. Um, right. And I said, I'm 18. Yeah. Like, I can't, I don't want to get married. Mm -hmm. And slowly his persistence got more threatening. Um, the longer I was there, the longer he was, he was just full of anger and he was like oh you know if you don't obey me uh, because al-shabaab also lived and controlled the city that he lived in oh my gosh so he said that if i didn't comply mm -hmm. um he would report me to al-shabaab and i would be arrested for three months for being a asiwalidin which means a person who's disrespectful to their parent so I was like, okay, damn, <laughs> okay, he ain't playing. So I was like, I didn't say anything. I just stay silent. And can you go back to your auntie's house? No. Did you have a phone? I did. Who? Uh, there was a friend of mine. I made a friend um, who was a family friend in where my, the city my auntie was living in. So he gave me a phone. And I, when the threats got more and I was terrified, I thought, okay, let me at least suggest this guy. Mm -hmm, you know, the mm -hmm. one who bought me the phone. Right, to get married to. Yeah, I was like, right. you want me to get married? Like, at least this him. guy is all right. I was yeah, like, yeah. I'll marry him. Yeah, yeah. And he took my phone, beat the <gasps> shit out of me uh, for even suggesting it. And then I had no form of communication. 
Oh and God. I used to go to the um, like a internet cafe. So I could use the Facebook web. We didn't have an app then. Um, and then I think, did we have an app? Or mm-hmm. it was coming out, I'm not sure. But I was using the Facebook web uh, to message uh, two of, no, three of my friends, two from high school and another, just a friend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, to try find a way for me to get out. So they knew what was going on. I told them parts of what was happening. So they ended up raising money amongst themselves to send to me to try escape. And I mm-hmm. had a camera that my mother bought me. So I thought, let me sell that and mm-hmm. um, gather that money and get a flight or a bus out of here. I couldn't do that. Um, so I felt trapped. Um, and then I was just a shell of a person. I was walking. I was doing daily tasks, laughing with people. This is what I mean by laughter saved me. Mm-hmm. Laughing with people, making a joke out of everything and, you know, being my bubbly self, but also trying to hold back as much as I could so that I didn't get that much attention. Okay. Uh, because I knew that in where I lived, attention wasn't a great um, thing, especially for a woman. Right. And one day I was in the bathroom having a shower and I got a knock on the bathroom door and my cousin's like, come out, come out. Dad wants to introduce you to someone. Um, Hurry up. So they rushed me out. Um, I barely dried, came into the room and it felt as if it was the first day that I came, you know, different types of food, drinks. It was like a, a whole setup. Mm-hmm. And then my uncle's there, my future husband is there, and he sat me down and he explained, you know, this is uh, Hassan, this is your cousin. I said, what? <laughs> he goes, yeah, this is your cousin, this is your mom's sister, his sister's uh, son, and this is the person that you're going to marry. And then he says uh, he's um, 16, like he said he's two years younger than you. So I just turned 18, so he was, what, 16? Is it common in your culture for you to marry your cousins? Very common. Why? I have no clue. Because in, in the Western world, it's like incest. Yeah, it is. It should be, because that was my first cousin. We cannot marry, like, if they are c- very close, right. you cannot, it, it just w- will not work. Like, I said, like, in my mind, I kept thinking, I'm not going to have disabled children. Right. I'm not like our DNA is a very close exactly. to each other. So I just I got freaked out and I said no. And I, besides, they, you're saying that he's two years younger than me. He didn't look it because I'm really petite and very skinny. I look. I was a child you back a child. then, and he looked grown. He was massive and uh, not fat, but he's like mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. built. And I was like, okay, we majority of them don't even know when they had their children. So I don't mm. believe that he was 16. Right. You think he was older? They just didn't know his age. Yeah. Either my age or older. Mm-hmm. Like he, did, he just did not look like a 16-year-old to me. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, I said no and um, ate the food. Uh, <laughs> ignored their whole entire conversation. And then a few days later, he was like, 
my uncle suggested we go and get ice cream after saying no, no, no. They convinced me. I was like, you know what? Okay, fine. I'll go for the ice cream. Whilst I don't remember whether it was whilst we were there uh, going there or coming back, I, but I remember him grabbing my hand. There's a terrorist organization. We are not married. Why are you touching me? So I let go of his hand and I said, don't touch me. And he's like, but why? I said, if Al-Shabaab were to see us, who do you think will get into trouble? Me. And I said, I'm not going to die for you. I said, don't touch me. Don't hold my hand. Don't touch me. And he was like, okay, fine. And uh, I think my uncle advised him to, you know, try, you know, be romantic or some, I don't know what he, what Mm -hmm. they both discussed, but it felt weird. And I was like, no. And then a few weeks later, I was at my mom's best friend's house and I get a call from my dad. And he says, you know, congratulations. And I said, what? (laughs) For what? And he said, oh, you're a married woman now. And I said, what? And he goes, oh, um, you just got married. And I said, how? And he goes, oh, um, let me ask you, what's his name? Who's his family? What's his tribe? And I said to my father, you don't know the name of the man that you just married me off to. He said, no. Do you know his second name? No. I hung up because you literally, you didn't even sell me mm-hmm. because then that would have to be a right. money transaction. Yeah, yeah. You just gave me up. It could have been a terrorist. It could have been a dog. It could have been a person with suffering from severe mental health problems. It, you just gave me up. And I was in shock. And then everything happened so fast. Um, women were brought to the house. I got dressed up. On that day. On the exact same day. Uh, they put a green dress on me. Whitest makeup I've ever had in my face. I look like a ghost. <laughs> um, and then they got me a lot of gifts, um, which were actually put under my name. So he went to a shop, <laughs> got a bunch of clothes and you know fake jewelry and little scarves. And as a, to me, he presented it as a gift, mm-hmm. um, but it turned out that he actually wrote the debt on my name for me to pay it off. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mother was manipulated throughout. She was made to believe that I wanted the marriage, that I was excited, that you know I was looking forward to it. And whenever my mother, there was a day where my mother asked me, because it was right. so bizarre that out of nowhere, I'm like, you know, I want to get married. So she wanted to make sure she asked me if I was okay with it. My uncle's right there. The moment I don't have a phone, I can't, there's no way that I can contact her and I do not want to get beaten again by a grown ass man who has connections. um, The terrorist groups. The terrorist groups. I was was like, I can't. Um, So I said, yeah, I do. But in my mind, I thought it was never going to happen. That she would sense it or someone would stop it. But none of that happened. Um, prior to me getting married, uh, being given away, because of the tearing that I experienced when I was 14 years old, I was terrified that they were gonna get me married off. And the man would look at me and say, because you're open a little bit that you're not a virgin. So, and if you're not a virgin and you're not married, 
Al-Shabaab will stone you to death or they'll whip you. So I was absolutely terrified. So I decided to go to my auntie, the woman he was married to, and say, I'm, I started ripping from this age. This is the reason. My mom knows about it. And Show me. No. So me, there's like, no way that that's going to come out of my mouth. But How did you like this? No, no, no. no, but um, a cutter, we went to a cutter. I was taken to a cutter to examine me to see if I was a virgin and I was telling the truth. And she examined me and said, uh, she's a virgin. Um, what she's saying could be true. Um, and that she offered to re-sew me and I said, you just confirmed that I'm a virgin, right? I said, thank you so much. Uh, I'm not doing it. Thank God, thank God. So I just needed that confirmation so that I wouldn't be dead God. right now. And um, they, again, got me, I got all dressed up, all dolled up, wasn't dolled up. I looked, like I said, I looked like a ghost. Mm -hmm. Put in the back of a car, driven, driven around town as like a celebration type thing. Bought back to the house, presented with gifts and stuff. Women came, everybody ate. And then I was put in a room by myself with everything in there was secondhand, by the way. You, my mom's money was the only motive behind this marriage. And I sat on a bed at the edge of the bed and I'm looking at a mirror. That's like a tiny little mirror in front of me. And I'm just thinking, how am I in this situation? How am I in this situation? Like I was in the UK, everything was completely normal. I was a happy, carefree teenager mm -hmm. who ignored her problems, right. but was content, you know, with the life that she was living. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden now I am a whole married woman and it's like, what am I gonna do? And there's these ideas running through my head like, okay, I'm gonna have to have sex today. What the fuck am I gonna do? I don't even know how to begin or where to end or how it goes and I didn't pay attention <laughs> that much to sex education. Mm -hmm. um, and then he enters the room and in my culture they wear something called ma'awis and it's like a material they wrap around their um, hips. Okay. It, he, the moment he came in, he just dropped it. And this is one of the reasons why I think he was older than his age. Because how do you just, the moment you come in, just right. drop everything and you're just like, it just didn't make sense. But because it was so unusual the way that it happened, and I told you my, my coping mechanism is either yeah, you know, yeah. laughing, I genuinely, my mom, my mind was battling whether to laugh or cry. Because of the way that it happened, it was so unusually funny. Like, it was so... Weird. Weird, but funny at the same time. I was like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. Who does that? But then I thought, shit, there's a reason why he's doing it. Because shit is about to go down. So I thought, you need to think of something. And then I thought, you know, there's so many pins in my hair. So I was like, can you help me take these off? And when I say a lot, there was a lot. So he was taking, trying to find the pins and it took, it gave me some time to think. Mm. But in that moment, I was still trying to figure out a way to escape, to leave. I was trapped in a room with this man for seven days, but I was still trying to find a way to leave. Why for seven days? Honeymoon stage. 
you're in that room together for seven days. You, know you only come out for showers or to make wudu, you know, to get ready for prayer. You have to stay in a room for seven days? Yeah. Well, yeah, with your husband, yeah. And um, whilst he was taking it out, I thought to myself, well, Shamsa, you have two choices, don't you? One, you can either get raped today, tonight, or you can submit and just say, okay, let it happen today, and tomorrow you can tell him to fuck off, <laughs> you know? At least you did it. And at first, that's what my mindset was. Um, but I didn't calculate the pain that I would have to endure, especially having had FGC, having been tearing for a few years. Um, I didn't think of any of that. So when eventually the pins came out and you know things were starting to happen, I let it happen. So when things started happening physically, I was in agony. I was in pain because there was no way that it could penetration could possibly happen. Of course. And if it did, I knew that I would rip. Um, I didn't know the extent of the damage that would happen, but I knew some damage would take place. So that's what I chose. That's why I chose the uh, submission rather than fighting it. Um, but unfortunately, it didn't work out in my favor because after trying, I could not bear the pain, and I said, "I get off, <laughs> get off me. Mm -hmm. um, I can't do it." And I was ignored. Um, I was already in a compromising position, and I was held down and sexually assaulted. Um, so my first sexual experience was through violent rape. And again, my body went into shock. I couldn't fight, I couldn't try it, but could, like, it's like, you're almost out of your body. Like you're trying, mm -hmm. you think you're, you're doing mm -hmm. something, mm -hmm. but you're really not doing anything. Mm -hmm. And when I say the guy is massive, like he is big and I am so tiny and petite, worse than I am now and a lot shorter as well. So he overpowered me in every way. And the pain took over my body from head to toe. But because my body went into complete shock, I didn't feel anything in that moment. Mm -hmm. It, I, I can't, I can't even begin to describe it. Um, but when he was finished, he just turned around and went to sleep, and I cried myself to sleep. It happened for another four days, and then I said if you touch me, I will kill you. And I will go, because by then, I was being brutally raped constantly because I was trapped in that room with this man. Um, I couldn't scream because that's shameful. Why are you screaming? That's your husband. Um, my family were around me and I was still being sexually assaulted. So because of the internal damage that he caused, I couldn't urinate anymore. So I would pee a little bit and the rest would shoot back inside. 
and I would just lay completely flat on in the toilet, which is not really a toilet. It's the most unclean environment to lay on. Oh, my gosh. But I couldn't. I was in so much pain. They refused to take me to a hospital. Um, when I tried to take myself, everything costs money. Um, so I couldn't afford it. Um, but I, I knew a girl who worked at the hospital that I used to enjoy talking to. But nevertheless, there's nothing that they can do unless you pay for your treatments. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I don't remember. This is what I mean. I don't remember if I, she ever examined me. I doubt it. But honestly, it could have been a possibility. Um, and then when the seven days was over, my uncle decided, oh, actually, I don't want to tolerate her anymore. So he kicked us out of the house and I had to use the money that I had for the camera and the money that my friend sent to rent a house. But what about your so-called husband? Oh, he came with... But why didn't he pay for it? He had nothing. So where was he going to live? Where I live. But in my mind, I thought I'm going to be... This is my house. I, I rented it out. He didn't sign... The, I signed the contract. Okay. But that's not how it works. No. You're not <laughs> the head of no. the household. No. Although majority of Somali women are okay. the head of the household, I just wasn't at okay. that time. And then um, when we moved into the new property, it was like six bedrooms, but I still felt like I was trapped in one. And um, I was still expected to cook, clean, do the laundry. And when I say clean, I mean physically clean the clothes. Like what was he doing? Down. Nothing. Going out, you know, enjoying town, enjoying being young. And I had to do all the cleaning and cooking. Mm -hmm. So one day he came to me, bought me a bunch of clothes. And he's like, I need you to wash these. And I said, how do you want me to wash them? There's no washing machine. Mm -hmm. and he's like, I want you to wash it by hand. <laughs> I said, I'm not doing that. The the powder that is used, the washing powder, it bothers my skin. Like, I, it peels my skin. So I said, I'm not doing that. And besides, I'm in pain. I'm in agony every single day. So how do you want me to bend and mm. clean something? I said, I'm not going to do that. You can do it yourself. You have two hands. I can see it. And he saw that as an insult. And he went out. Uh, to my uncle I don't know what my uncle said to him but he returned back to the house literally grabbed me pinned me to a wall and started slapping and punching and when I got over the shock I ran out of the house I went to my granddad and I was like what the fuck you guys forced me to marry this man you guys all as a family consented to forcing me to marry him and now he's gonna beat me on top of that I said I'm not gonna that's not gonna happen what did he say <laughs> because my family don't take me serious because I laugh at everything and they genuinely think it's a joke because of the way that I am being. Instead of breaking down, I would rather, like, smile. And I don't know, I can't really explain it. But I'm talking to him in a serious way, but I'm also giggling. So he didn't take me serious. And he turned around and he said, you know, this is your, this is what a marriage is. He shouldn't have ever touched you. We'll talk to him. It's never going to happen again. Um, just go back to your husband. I said, I'm not going back. I said, there's no way I'm going back. And he said, uh, choose, you have two choices. 
one to be cursed, I'll curse you. And the other is I will bless you. Like I'll make dua, I'll pray for you. I said, curse me. And he started laughing because he said the this whole time that he's been alive, no one has ever picked a curse because that's your granddad. You know, you don't want mm -hmm. the family curse. I said, I don't give a shit. I swear, I, I don't care. I said, curse me. If you think that your curse is going to come to me and going to be accepted when I'm the one that is being violated, I said, you've got it all wrong. It's going to come back on you. I yeah. said, go for it. And again, because I was so blunt, he started laughing and he's like, okay, okay, fine. Um, just go back to the house and we'll discuss it tomorrow. We didn't discuss anything. I was taken back to the house by his son, my uncle. Mm -hmm. And the moment we got to the front door, he opened the door. I took, there was a house being built next to us. Um, so I hid a rock under, uh, like behind me. And when he realized it was his, uh, his uncle, because he didn't want to open the door for me. But when he saw him, he opened the door like a lot wider. And when he was exposed, so I took it and I aimed it at his chest and it went boom. And then he, you know, started showering. He's like, look, it's her that's um, the abusive one. I said, yeah, in public, I'll abuse the shit out of you because you do your shit in private. That's the difference between me and you. They can't see what you do to me, but at least I'm, you know, um, strong enough to do it in front of them. In front of them, yeah. And then my uncle started laughing and he's like, there you go. You got yours back now. You know, you got your own back. So he's like, just go back to the house. The man that I just hit. <laughs> He's like, go back in with him. Everything's going to be fine. And I just thought, I'm just going to get beaten. That That's what I'm here for, mm -hmm. to be raped and to be beaten. That's it. Because the marriage was never valid. Right. So if the marriage isn't valid, your whole purpose is to be a prostitute who's not getting paid. Mm -hmm. Just lay there, cook clean. Except even a prostitute don't cook and clean. Mm -hmm. Not for the man that she's fucking. But it just became... The, what I used to be called and it just everything was spiraling out of control in my mind it's like did, it's because they think that I was a whore that they've right. decided to just give me up right um is it one of the reasons that uh is it because they saw that in me is the reason why they cut me right. to prevent it right. like what is it that they see in me that caused them to believe that I was this type of person when I'm the complete opposite right and I was battling that. Again, I wasn't speaking to my mother. Uh, they completely separated us. The money that she used to send to me was sent to him now. And the beatings just got worse and worse and worse. Every day would be the typical, you know, pushes. But there were four instances. The first one that I described, two other ones where I were, was unable to defend myself. Um, I was on my period and had internal damage, mm -hmm. um, none of which were healing. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a very, very lonely time for me. Mm -hmm. And what ended up happening is the fourth time that he beat me was so severe and I did nothing. Me and him did not have a conversation. I was on my period, laying in bed in agony he comes, he's like, get up, six, like five, six o'clock in the morning, go to the market, get some meat and vegetables and start cooking. I said, 
my guy, I said, no, I'm in pain. I'm tired. I'm not getting up. I said, you go get it. And I'm happy to get up and cook. But I'm not doing both. Mm-hmm. And he was like, get up and go. And I was like, you know what? You can't risk getting beaten whilst you're like this. So I got up, got ready, wore this massive hijab I could barely carry because I was so thin. Mm-hmm. Uh, the heat dragged myself there with the pain that I was in, dragged myself back. And in the process, again, I forgot something because I'm a forgetful person. I forgot the stock cubes. And my cousins were coming to have breakfast with us. So I was like, you know what? Okay, let me cook all of us a meal. And um, when I started cooking, I realized that the stock cube was missing. So I called one of my cousins over who was maybe seven, eight. uh, And I said, can you go buy this for me? So he went out to go buy it. uh, My other little cousins were in the room. And then I thought, okay, whilst he's gone, let me try to take a nap like small lay down so that I'm not sat down and in Mm -hmm. agony I lay down on the bed and I think I drifted off to sleep Um, and I find I woke up to this man physically on top of me and he started like the moment I opened my eyes he started punching my head my face and working his way down as he moved back so it was like boom, 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 and it's working his way down. Mm-hmm. And um, got off me without saying a word, left the room, shut the door. And I was like, what the actual fuck just happened? I, he punched me from head to toe and just walked out of the room. And I couldn't understand what was going on. But I took all of the furniture and pinned it to the wall because I, I was scared that it was going to come back yeah. with something. Mm-hmm. So, and then I realized, I was like, what the fuck am I doing? Yeah. So I took, a, I, let me tell you, those furnitures were massive. So I'm talking bed, Why? wardrobe, cupboard. Yeah. I don't know what strength I had to for me to push all of that to the door and then have to have all of that removed. Just it took me it. about 20 minutes yeah. Yeah. to remove everything. Mm-hmm. And went outside, went to the other couple who lived with us, got their phone, called my mom, and I was like, is this what you wanted? And she's like, what are you talking about? I said, your family have forced me to get married. And I had to stay silent. I didn't tell my mom about the rape because she had um, diabetes and blood, high blood pressure. And I knew the type of woman that she was, she would flip yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I didn't tell her, but I did tell her that he hit me and he beats me and it's been since from the beginning. And she lost her shit. And she was like, so I gave my child up for free because this was her sister's son. You keep saying for free. Do people get? Do people do it? You, you no, pay? as in like when your daughter's getting married, you're the one that receives money. You're the one yeah. that you don't have to get, the, you don't have to financially provide for the wedding, right, right, nothing, because right. it's your daughter. Got it. Right? But my mom provided everything because that family had nothing. Okay. So she felt like she, she was should. responsible because I am her daughter. Um, so I explained everything to her and she said, I'm going to speak to the rest of the family. And I said, please just know that they will lie to you yeah, yeah. as they have been doing for the past few months. Mm-hmm. And she said, uh, I believe you. 
And um, don't worry. So she went, spoke to the family. They told her a completely different story that I was a bad breed and I wasn't listening and mm -hmm. um, I'm too westernized and whatever. And then my mom phoned me back and she explained that I will need to escape because they are not going to yeah. easily let me go um, because they were gaining financially. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, okay, my, because my mom knew that I was ill, he knew that I was sick, but he did. my mom didn't know the reason. I made it out like it was the beating yes. that caused you know, my the illness sickness, or whatever. Yeah. And so she convinced him to allow me to go to the hospital because I have a friend there. So I went to her and I said, no matter what time they come, just say she just left. Okay. Don't make it, you know. Yeah, yeah. No suspicion that I left the yeah, town. Yeah. You know, yeah, I yeah. wanted them to linger <laughs> in it, town and try to look for me, if anything. And she agreed. I took a bus wearing a hijab covered from head to toe, gloves included, socks included, niqab included, um, and sat on the window side. And my uncle went, not my uncle, not the violent yeah, yeah. psychopath, but his brother walked right past the window. And I'm not going to lie to you, I think I pissed myself a little because I thought I'm gonna die. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. is it, yeah, yeah. like I'm done. But, and I started praying and I was like, please save me, <laughs> please save me. I will never do anything bad ever in my life. <laughs> I said, oh, please God save me. And I kept chanting over and over and over and over again. And the bus moved and my uncle, one of his other threats was I'm going to put um, your picture in every checkpoint. So if you try to escape, your photo will be there. And if they catch you, they'll put you straight into prison. So my fear was if I leave, I'm going to get caught. Okay. Um, but from checkpoint to checkpoint to checkpoint, it was no disturbance at all. No stops, no checks, no nothing until we got to um, the city that the government, the capital, where the government was in control, uh, barely. Um, and I met up with my auntie, Shamsa, and my other, her sister. And they helped you my escape? My other auntie, yeah. Oh. They were there to pick me up from the bus, bus stop, took me to their family home. And I think a few hours later, because the bus journey was very long. It takes maybe a day and a half to get there. Um, so imagine traveling on your own <laughs> um, in a country that you don't really know. Yeah. And everybody looks like you, but you don't know what, who's who? bad and who's good and none of that. So it was really scary. Uh, but a few days later, I get a phone call on the little mobile I had. And because uh, they know people from the phone towers so they can go and get my number. So they got my number. He phoned me. I didn't pick the up. The rapist. The rapist, yeah. He d I didn't pick up. My auntie did. Uh, because her name is Shamsa. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was like, oh, is this Shamsa? So she said, yeah, it is. Because her name is Shamsa. And he goes, watch when I find you. I'm going to um, make sure that you never see the light of day again. I'm going to imprison you. You're never going to leave. You're never going to escape. You try to run, but it's, things are going to get a lot worse for you now. Uh, you need to come back. And my auntie was like, I'm sorry, um, but you're speaking to the wrong Shamsa. This is her auntie, Shamsa. And she said, everything that you've just said now, how about you come to our city and do what you just claimed that you were going to do? Mm -hmm. 
and see that whether we're just going to stand around and let it happen. And hearing that, I cannot tell you how it made me feel. For once, you were protected. For once, someone was saying, there is no fucking way. Mm -hmm. No way. You mm -hmm. did all you could mm -hmm. to her, but now mm -hmm. we're not going to fucking tolerate that shit. Mm -hmm. And they said, if you ever step foot in Mordisha, it will be the last time. So how did <laughs> you, you get back to the UK? Um, my mother, during the time that I was going through all of this, I didn't know, was battling uh, cancer. Stage four, actually. And apparently she found out because I told her about my abuse mm -hmm. and her sugar levels wouldn't come down. Mm -hmm. So when they did uh, the test to see, they discovered that she had terminal cancer. Um, they did the test in Germany because in the US, um, in the UK, the NHS was absolutely useless. <laughs> they told her she had a migraine. Um, so she went to Germany, discovered that she had a brain tumor. And by that time, my family, majority of my family and my mother's friends and relatives genuinely thought that I had bought this about. It had happened because of me. But I didn't know any of this information. So when my brother came to get me, I was unaware that months before he came, my mother was on her deathbed begging my family members to go and get her daughter. Begging. Because they all were like, oh, no, leave her there. Let her stay there. If you die, she's going to get out of hand. You know, um, none of us are going to be able to, you know, control her. Um, just, you know, leave her there. And I remember I had a phone call with my mother where I thought, you know, mothers just say things. You know, if I die and this happens, yeah, you know. Yeah. Da, da, da. So I spoke to her once and she said, if I die whilst you're there, I need you to know that not one member of your family will look back at you. And I was like, okay. And she said, more so when you come back is also going to be the same. Nobody will offer you any help or support. Okay. They will all turn their backs on you. So you need to make sure that you make something out of yourself so that you do not have to suffer in this world. But at the time she was saying this, I didn't realize that she was dying. And that was her advice to me I just thought it's just something that mothers say but obviously now I know better and what she said was going to happen happened and I returned but I was on the aeroplane when my brother turned to me called this way possible and said oh mom died and mom's dying I'm like what and he's like oh yeah she's got cancer what and then the moment I landed, I asked him, please take me to the hospital. He refused, said I was jack, you know, jet-lagged and tired. So was I. But I wanted to see my mother, mm -hmm. uh, who I haven't seen for a year. Um, so I went to the hospital. I saw the condition that my mother was in, completely broke down. And I had a woman waiting outside for me. <laughs> and she was a close friend with my mother. And I grew up with her children. So she took me to the corner and she's like, do you see that bed that your mom's laid in? It's like, yeah. She said, you put her there. I was like, what? And she goes, you put her there. She even said it herself. And I know that my mother would never say anything like that. But she just had that chance to tell me that what has happened to my mother was my fault. She couldn't wait. 
Um, and then a doctor told me, um, I think a few days later, that my mother had 48 hours to live, mistaking me for my sister. And then that was another shock because I thought, okay, maybe we have a chance to save her. But then I realized, okay, that's it. Um, and then my mother was moved to a hospice. But the day before she was moved, I made it my mission because when I came back, I heard that no one wanted me to come back apart from her. Okay. And I was basically the last person whose name came out of her mouth before she was no longer functioning. Because of that idea in my head that she wanted my safety and my protection and for me to be here, I needed her to know that I was back so that she can at least die peacefully knowing that I came back. So there was this, uh, <laughs> it's okay. There was this um, time where I sat next to her and her eyes kept moving like back and forth, back and forth, but so quick. It was almost like machine-like. And um, I just kept telling her over and over again, oh my God, that I am really sorry for everything that I've done because I was told that I did this to mm -hmm. her. And that I'm here, that I'm safe, that I love her. I was just repeating those. Forgive me, I love you. Um, I'm here. And the more I said it, the more I said it, the more I said it, her eyes stopped. And she was focused on me for what felt like five minutes, but it was only for maybe 60 seconds uh, tops. And she started crying. Like actual tears was flowing. And um, I couldn't bear it that she was on her deathbed and I was making her cry. And there were two women in the room. They came and she lost um, mm -hmm. concentration and her eyes went back to ticking again. And they're like, they're like, oh my God, do it again, do it again. And I'm like, I am not going to sit here and make my mother cry on her deathbed yeah. for your entertainment. Right. Because the, her eyes never stopped before. Right. I was like, what is wrong with you? And I walked out. Mm -hmm. She was moved to a hospice where she died a few days later. Um, at my mother's funeral, I was told that I did that to her graveyard. When we took her, I was told again, I put her six feet under. My mother's funeral lasted three days. Every day I was told that I was responsible. So... Not only did I put my trauma aside, because no one else was interested in knowing what happened to me, especially the ones that I loved and yeah. thought loved me. No one asked, not my sister, not my brothers, not my father, uncles, aunties, only friends. And, um, I couldn't bear the thought that everyone genuinely believed that I caused my mother's brain tumor and death because I told her about my trauma. So I thought, I can't tell anybody. And I kept her um, to myself. But again, majority of my family be believed at the time that nothing happened to me, that I was just complaining and you know, exaggerating the stories. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, but you never asked. So how do you know that I'm exaggerating everything when you've never asked what happened? And I became severely depressed. 
Um, I became homeless automatically because I was taken off the tenancy agreement because they didn't want to live with me. And um, the council, everybody basically said I made myself intentionally homeless, although I tried to explain I wasn't even in the country. So I felt like I was then now trapped in the UK with no possible support, no nothing. I didn't have a family, I didn't have anywhere to live, I didn't, I was just living at that point. But something inside of me, I didn't know, I know now, was not letting me settle for anything. Okay. Anything less than I thought I deserved. And so I made the decision to completely move out of London for my sanity. Because mm -hmm. in 2013, I got I remarried. Once I got divorced, I went straight into another marriage because I wanted to feel loved. Okay. But I got married out of desperation. I didn't have anybody. Okay. And it was someone that I dated before. Okay. So Not a forced marriage? No, no. Okay. okay. It was someone of my choice. Okay. But because I was in such a bad place, yeah. I thought maybe this yes, is what I need, you know, um, where I carried majority of the weight. I was the husband and the wife, mm -hmm. uh, the mother and the father. I couldn't handle that. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to do it on my own rather than having to tolerate, you know, doing it by myself. Mm -hmm. And um, I got divorced in 2015. Mm -hmm. Um, I gave birth to my daughter in 2014, came back to London with her. I gave birth in Holland. Okay. Um, and when we came back, I stayed a few weeks with, and then I was kicked out with my daughter by family members. And then they knew that I had nowhere to go. So I made a deal and said, you know, let me work and um, earn enough money so I can move. Um, and I went on Gumtree, typed in cheap two-bedroom accommodation and my first ever house in Burnley was the first thing that popped up and that was the first thing that I took. I didn't even know where it was. Okay. I've never heard of it before, but I thought anywhere is better than here. As yeah. long as it's far away from here, mm -hmm. far away from them, yeah. I knew that I would be okay. And that's exactly what I did. I left London with my daughter, her posture and three black bags on the posture, took a train, um, no, took a coach, went uh, to, uh, to Burnley, um, got the keys to the house, no furniture, no nothing. And literally when I say I started from scratch, I started from scratch and not knowing what finances were, not knowing how to manage it, not knowing what credit score was, P45 was. Right. It was like being thrown into another world right. that you've never experienced before. So I t got things on credit, like a bed and sofas and TV. Uh, not the TV, I bought the TV, but mm -hmm. everything else that I couldn't afford. Yeah. Because uh, obviously I had no support. So even if I were to buy secondhand things, they're still expensive. They cost money. And I couldn't work because I had a young child who I was terrified of leaving anybody of with. Of course. Until now, I'm terrified. Of course. So, but now, everything that I have, I own. Um, majority of what I owned, I gave, uh, threw away now because it no longer serves me. But 
everything that does I kept. Right. And I live in Burnley now. I've lived there for six uh, six years. Amazing. Um, I am a university student. But even when I lived in Burnley, when I moved there, I went to visit doctors. I went to, when I was giving birth to my daughter, I was absolutely terrified of because of the FGM, because mm -hmm. of the trauma that I, w I have never dealt with. Everything was getting too much for me in every stage of my life. And it all surrounded FGM. Mm -hmm. um, with my birth, it was the fear of ripping left, right and center or dying in a, um, as a result of trying to you know, give birth. And, but with the professionals, it was almost like the, the practice is criminal, but we are criminal too. Because you're not doing anything about it. No, it's not even that. It's like, oh, you're having a daughter now. Are you going to do it to her? Do you plan on doing it to your daughter? And I'm like, no. Why would you think that? Right. So you're made to feel like because the practice mm. is so barbaric, then you must you're be as barbaric too because you're going to do it to your daughter. But it's like saying to a rape victim, are you going to rape your kid? It's unethical. It is not okay. But it happens. They do not help you in any way but they will interrogate you. Mm -hmm. They will bombard you with questions, ask you what it looks like, what it feels like, what um, someone was asked, okay, on Google, they typed on Google FGM, vaginas, and it came up and they were like, okay, which one are you? Who does that to, to any victim of any crime? It's not okay. No. How were you raped? Can you show me? <laughs> like, it just doesn't make sense. And eth is an ethical problem. You cannot say things like this to survivors no. because you don't understand their culture, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. you criminalize the practice, but you're not serving these people in any way, shape or form. You're, you're criminalizing them. them. Yeah. You're re-victimizing them. Yeah. So the languages that are used, the way that they are treated is disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. And there are so many organizations, uh, FGM orientated, but they don't, there's no, no survivor knows about it. Right. It's not accessible to them. So what, what, what is your purpose? Mm -hmm. Why are you there if you're not providing direct services to yes. heal and help these women? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But you're so focused on the practice and ending it. How are you going to end it when it's women doing it to women? If you don't educate those women, inspire those women, care and support those women, if you make them feel like they're the criminal, that they're disgusting, that there's something wrong with them, mm -hmm. they're just going to think like you're attacking their culture. You're attacking their yeah. way of life. Yeah. You're being disrespectful. Mm -hmm. So they're going to continue it. But if they did what they do with domestic violence survivors or rape survivors, then we wouldn't feel the, the way, way that, that we do. feel. You know? You know, hearing your story, it's... I don't really have anything to say. Mm. I feel like throughout that, I was so emotional. And it's so hard to even comprehend what you've been through because it's so tough on so many levels. Mm. And I think that's probably why a lot of people say they are so strong. Because mm. even hearing it, I don't know how it's, it, you're able to cope. Mm. And I, you know, I just want to thank you for coming on and sharing your story. Anytime. <laughs> because you, I feel like it will help so many people understand how wrong it is. You know, FGC, 
is such a disgusting, terrible thing that we need to try and help people if they're going through it and we need to prevent it. And I'm gonna put some links to the charities and organizations that you suggest that we can support and follow. Of course. But I know it must have been hard for you to retell this and... um, It was very, very difficult. But my thing about sharing my story is when I was looking for someone to relate to, I couldn't find one. Yeah. I couldn't find someone young. I couldn't find a single parent. I couldn't find a black woman. I couldn't find anybody that had a similar story. Yeah. And when I say similar stories, it's different stories, but in one. Right. I didn't just go through one trauma. No. It was trauma after trauma after trauma. And um, I wanted to be able to, I want to be able to give women and young girls the chance to be able to relate to someone. Yeah. Whether it's the domestic violence, whether it's the forced marriage, whether mm-hmm. it's the rape, whether it's the FGM, they will be able to relate in all of those ways. Yeah. And I know that not, no one, okay, how do I say this? Often people believe that women go through just one form of trauma. No, they don't. (laughs) No, they don't. It's like the majority of their life is is traumatic. Something really fucked up happens. Mm -hmm. And it's about showing those women that, okay, I'm young. I'm in my 20s. I'm leaving soon. (laughs) 30s. But you are in control of your body, of your mind. You make choices that benefit you yeah i want them to think for themselves yeah to be able to educate themselves and not be educated by members of their family because i'm sorry those people are traumatized themselves yeah they need therapy themselves yeah you know and i really want to end the silencing culture that we have in our community because it is the one thing that is i believe is really dangerous not only for our physical, our mental, our psychological, emotional well-being. Yeah. It affects us in so many ways and we're almost like a shell of a person walking around and just functioning. Yeah. That's what I was. I was just yeah. functioning. Yeah. I wasn't myself. I, was, I didn't have any hobbies. Just there existing. were no likes. I was just existing mm-hmm. in my bubble of negativity. Mm-hmm. But then when I started to change my view on the way that I looked at sex, for example, I didn't enjoy it, Mm. even with my second husband. Mm -hmm. I didn't enjoy it. Mm -hmm. But then when I started changing my view of it, because I had such a negative view because of the rape, because of all the other experiences, I thought, you know, I'm a slut, (laughs) you know, you're you're a whore, you're this, you're that. Am I not supposed to enjoy it? Yeah. But then with the FGM, you're made to believe that, you know, you're not supposed to enjoy sex. It, it takes your desires away. It takes your sexual pleasure away. And that's a myth. Right. If you, a woman works on her psychological well-being, yeah. her mental health truly works on it mm-hmm. and changes her view on sex, sexuality, the way that she feels her body, mm-hmm. um, looks at her insecurities and things. Actually, no. Yeah. I like myself like this. Mm-hmm. Whether my vagina has reconstructed surgery or not, I like myself like this. Yeah. And once you start believing in yourself and start believing that not you're a full woman, there is nothing that is missing. The clitoris isn't, you know, that little bit that's exposed. It's actually really long. Yeah. And it can be bought out if needed. Yeah. The the muscles and the damages caused can easily be cleaned. Yeah. Can easily be repaired. Mm-hmm. So it's not like um 
that's it, you're butchered and yeah. you're dismembered and you're mutilated and you know, you're never gonna feel anything. Those, that's why I stay away from the word mutilation. Yeah. I can't relate to it. I was cut. Yes. I w the practice is cutting and the person who does it is a cutter. Yeah, yeah. If it was mutilation, it would have been a mutilator. Right. <laughs> you know, who performs yeah. it? Yeah. They still refer to the person who performs it as a cutter. Right. But they refer to the practice as mutilation. And I get it, it's to give the practice such a horrendous name to get people to stop. Yes. But I'm sorry, I know how horrendous it is because it happened to me. Yeah. 200 million women know how horrendous it is because it happened to them. Yeah. And if someone was to like me to sit here and tell you their experience of it, you would look at it and think, what the fuck? Right? Yeah. So yeah. we'd know, you know that from experience, it is horrible. Yes. We don't need to, a, a horrible label for us to think, oh, that's horrible. We're not thick. Mm -hmm. We are the ones who suffer from PTSD, memory problems, who uh, live with insecurities, complications, cysts, infections. Some have died. Mm. But again, the women are not the focus. Yeah of, you know, what can we do to stop this practice when you're ignoring the women, the ones who are doing it, the ones who are subjected to it, you're ignoring that. And that's where I want to come in. I am sick and tired of these women being neglected, yeah, not looked at, not being taken seriously. People don't know. As a doctor, how do you know? How can you not know? As a social worker, as a teacher, as a midwife, as a nurse, as a police officer, how can you not know how to treat a survivor yeah, yeah. or how to speak to a survivor of FG, uh, FGC? Uh, something that you guys had criminalized, to, that you, you were told to look out for, signs, yeah, so right? True. But you are speaking to these people as if that they are disgusting, as if they are the criminals. There's no solution given. There's no solution given. Yeah. There's no advice. There's no so how help. How do you help them? So it's mm -hmm. very confusing even the training programs now they're three minutes long information being thrown at you how are you going to learn there's no one for you to sympathize with there's no, no face no no and if there's no face there's nobody to sympathize with it. you're just looking at a bunch of information that you cannot relate to yeah there's no one there that can help you understand relate to it. that or understand it mm -hmm. so then everything is lost in translation the links that are supposed to be there to protect these women are completely broken yeah People don't have enough training. Yeah. They don't have the right type of training. And they don't know and what to do. They don't know what to do. I think it's so important, the work that you're doing. And I think, you know, raising awareness around this, telling people what they need to do, having processes in place to actually help these women is going to change everything. So it thank is. you so much. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for coming on. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank I really you. do. Um, if you don't mind, can I mention? I didn't mention. Yes. Um, I am starting my own charity mm -hmm. and it's called uh, Garden of Peace. Okay. Because when I started the journey, um, my healing journey, yeah. I look at it as I planted my seed of healing. Mm -hmm. And a plant doesn't take, you know, a few days to grow. It is a journey in yeah. itself. And that is the journey that I'm on. I cannot tell you right now that I've bloomed. Yes. And that I'm fully healed, mm -hmm. but I'm still in that process. And I will not stop until my seed blooms. I love and that. I want to be able to give opportunities to women who can come to a safe space, 
share their stories without any fear of you know being it being leaked or you know this person I don't want the world to hit it will be within the garden of peace mm-hmm. your garden our garden I love that so it's like a sisterhood I love I that. absolutely adore it um, I and I can't wait to introduce it to the world there's a quote and it said the day you plant the seed is not the day you eat the fruit there you go so I love that there you go thank you I'm so much. very excited But thank you so much for having me. No, It's absolutely amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hey everyone, and thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Wherever you're listening or watching, if you could press the like, follow and subscribe button, it would mean the world to me.